Well, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, we'll uh, get into verse 2 and work our way through about half of verse 4 this morning. Um, Don't quite see the Prezi up there yet, so we'll see what we can make happen. Trust that those notes will help you as you follow. Hey, there we go. Help you as we follow along this morning. Really thinking about patiently discipling prickly people. Uh, There's probably no chapter in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I had spent uh, more time in prior to this series of working through the book as a whole than chapter 7. You might be most acquainted with chapter 7 and its lengthy portion on understanding what is real repentance. And he contrasts with the language of worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And, and so that's where I'd spent the majority of my time in 2 Corinthians 7, particularly in a counseling context, working through life and struggles with people. And I really thought, as I was getting into the text, as I was starting to study it, that that's where we would quickly get to, but ran into some issues here in verses 2 through 4 that, frankly, were personally convicting, and as I was studying them, uh, found them to be immensely helpful. And so I think it's right to take the time this morning to work through them. Maybe I could introduce it to you a little bit this way. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson once said this, A man is a hero not because he is braver than anyone else, but because he's brave for 10 minutes longer. Uh, Boy, if there's ever anything that's hard for me, it's patience. I don't tend to be a patient sort of person. I don't think that I am, particularly when it comes to, in all honesty and transparency, my own growth spiritually, my own progress, or frankly, oftentimes the progress and growth of others. Uh, I think one of the funniest scenes in a modern movie is the DMV scene in Zootopia. Uh, They walk in and the whole staff at the DMV are sloths. And and I think it's hilarious because it's the exact kind of situation that would drive me nuts. It reminds me uh, as a little boy going to the Glen Burnie DMV outside of Baltimore. And my mom on the way before we got there got me, my brother and I some lunch from McDonald's or something. She'd made us pack comic books and matchbox cars. We would get to the DMV and she'd find a place for us to sit up against this cold tiled wall because she knew this was going to be an event for hours. As you waved your way through this line, no, you forgot this form, go to 13B, you go to 13B. No, you're supposed to go to 7A first. And it was horrible. You felt like you were back in communist Russia and everybody's patience was thin and everybody was annoyed. I don't think of myself as a patient person. I'm amused by that scene in the movie because it's the exact kind of thing that would drive me nuts. But if there's something besides patience that I struggle with, it's optimism. I tend to be a realist. I tend to be one of those guys that says this is the way it is, and and this is what needs to change, and this is how we need to work on it, and this is what needs to happen to solve that complex problem. And so to think about someone being optimistic or having hope in something just is a little bit beyond me. I think of situations, and and I don't want to hope too much, because, I mean, even as Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? And so if I don't hope too much, if I'm not too optimistic, then that will somehow guard against how much I get hurt. I don't know, maybe you're like me that way. I don't want to put too much confidence in a good thing that would happen. I'd rather be prepared for the next shoe to drop. That way, I don't shed as many tears. And yet, when I take those concepts together, patience and optimism, 
I'm so glad that my Heavenly Father doesn't deal with you or I that way. I'm so thankful that Jesus operated with patient optimism instead of Steve Johns-styled impatient realism. I think of his moment with Peter when he looks at Peter, he renames him and he says, and upon this rock I will build my church, Peter. The same guy that, that just a few chapters earlier, you can still almost smell the Sea of Galilee on him because he took his eyes off Jesus and started drowning. Isn't that the guy you want to lead the church? The guy who takes his eyes off Jesus and puts them on himself? I think not. The same guy that will argue with Jesus about going to the cross, the same guy that will abandon and deny he even knows Jesus at his trial. That's the guy? You know, I'm so astoundingly thankful that Jesus does not call out Peter and set his affections on Peter for who Peter is, but for who he knows he will make him to be. There's a patient optimism in Christ as he deals with and interacts with Peter and with you and I. And it is that patient optimism that we will see unpacked and unveiled through Paul this morning. You should think of the main idea of these verses then is this, love's hope fuels persistent positive discipleship. This idea that God has given me a love for him because we love God because he has first loved us. And with that love for God and his love placed in us, we then must and we are compelled to love other people. Love God, love others. It's the crux of the whole law. Uh, You could find it as the foundation for all the application. It is the central truth that he proclaims to those who follow him. Love God, love others. And Paul, filled with this love of God and love of others, results in a persistent, positive discipleship of others. And so if I'm opening with confessional statements that I don't tend to be a very patient or optimistic person, then you can already tell that this text had a lot to say to my own heart about the way I think about and do discipleship. Do I do it in an overtly persistent, positive way? And I'm not convinced that I do. And in fact, I'm, I'm really convinced that it's a struggle in my life and an area I need to grow. Uh, as recently as yesterday morning, I'm laying in bed early in the morning praying. I'm like, God, I don't know how I'm going to preach this text. And so I think the easiest way to preach it is just say, here's what the text says and own the reality. This is an area where God is growing me and changing me. Now, to get there, though, we need to understand what's going on in the context. So let me read the passage to you. Uh, follow along in your Bibles with them. Uh, verses 2 through 4. And then we'll just kind of quickly get up to speed. It's been five weeks or so since we've been in Second Corinthians. We won't take much time here, but we do want to get it up to speed. And the context is going to matter with the way we apply the text this morning. So it's important that we know that. So Second Corinthians chapter 7, we're right in the middle of the book. Uh, you can actually almost divide the book exegetically or textually here in the middle point. Uh, so everything before chapter 7 has kind of been building here. These verses, 2 through 4, are kind of the swing versus the hinge for the door where we kind of flip to, to the second half of the book. First half of the book, overtly apologetic or defensive. This is who I am. This is ministry. Second half of the book, largely instructive. This is who you are. This is what needs to change. And so this is that linchpin kind of hinge moment. And so it was perfect timing for us to take this break. But 2 Corinthians 7 verse 2, Paul writes this, make room in your hearts for us. Yes, if you're reading that correctly, that sounds exactly what, it, what it's intended to say. You need to love me. What a, what a shocking thing for an authority to tell people, for an apostle to tell the church, you need to love me better. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. 
We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Well, let's build some context here and understand maybe some contextual boundaries around the truths that we're going to see Paul put on display for you and I this morning about love's persistent, positive discipleship. First of all, these verses summarize chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, verse 1. In fact, this has been part of a very long parenthetical statement, kind of a pause uh, uh, in modern preaching lingo, a, a rabbit trail, it would seem. You see, chapter 2, he keeps building, keeps building. He's defending his travel plans. He had said, I'm coming. I'm not coming. Then he had come, and and then he said, I'm going to stay, and then he had left early. And the Corinthians are using all this to question Paul and his ministry. And ultimately, they make all these accusations about Paul, um, and and just some of them. uh, You're ugly. You don't speak well. uh, You don't have strength or power. There's not much fruit to your ministry. You're not very valuable. We shouldn't listen to you as an apostle. Your ministry is questionable. Some harsh criticisms. And so from verse two, four, chapter 2, verse 14, all the way through chapter 7, 1, he's defending his ministry. And you can actually see that in the text. If you look at chapter 2, verse 13, you'll notice this. He says, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And if you actually go to the next verses, you could, it seems like you could almost just continue reading his next thought. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without, fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And so, contextually then here, these verses summarize everything he's been saying from 2.14, this cutoff moment, all the way up until verse 1 of chapter 7. This is the culmination. So uh, now, for those of you that have been with us journeying through 2 Corinthians, that's great. You're like, oh, good. I I remember some of those truths. Um, Or or Steve, you got to be kidding me. I don't remember what you preached on by Monday afternoon, but you took notes or you took notes on whatever. But you're at least brought up to speed. But then we've got visitors this morning. What does that mean? And so I'm I'm not going to take lots of time there, but I do want to make sure we're all on the same page. But first of all, it's important you understand that's what these verses are doing, summarizing those truths. The truths that they're summarizing is largely this defense. Paul's apologetic, or kind of his defense testimony for why the ministry he does is actually trustworthy. It's valuable. In fact, it's even more than that. Paul's essentially arguing this is the only way to do ministry. See, the Corinthians wanted to do ministry in a way that made them respectable, that even got them money, that people looked at them in the society and in the culture and thought they were powerful and strong. And so they looked at Paul's weaknesses and said, well, that can't be God. They looked at Paul's persecutions and they said, well, you can do ministry and not be persecuted. And so Paul has had to defend all this ministry all along the way. And so uh, chapters 3 through 4, he unpacked what was new covenant ministry. In other words, this is the ministry Christ calls us all to. Jesus is the suffering servant before he's ever the conquering king. He wears the crown of thorns before he ever wears the crown of the judge. And he calls us to walk in his footsteps. This is why the call of the gospel. He says, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in spirit. And he says, take my yoke upon you. In other words, my burden. In another place he says, 
take up your cross and follow me. The very central truth of the gospel that Jesus unpacks to us is that to be saved is to turn from your sinfulness, put your trust in Christ's death on the cross for you, and then follow him. And so that's death to you and life in him. And so what he would want is now what you set your desires on. What he loves is now what you set your affections on. The way he would call you to live suddenly begins dictating how you seek to live. And so Paul says, as we do New Covenant ministry, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like God using very broken people to proclaim his truth. And so New Covenant ministry, chapter 3 through 4. Chapter 5, ministry really loves God and loves others. This is very countercultural particularly to the Corinthians and to America today, you don't do ministry for you. You're not into ministry, uh, whether that's pulpit pastoral ministry, or frankly, any ministry to your neighbors or your coworkers or your family. You don't do ministry for what it gets you. You can't love you at the same time that you're loving God and others. The gospel sets you free from the idol of selfishness and sets you free to sacrificially love God, and love others. And so that's what ministry must do, chapter 5. And then chapter 6 was ministry and love both gives and receives truth. Now we'll see in a minute why Paul had to make such a big deal over that. But this morning, in this moment then, if by the power of the Spirit I'm truly doing right ministry, or to put it more truly, that God is doing ministry through me to you, right? That it must be loving and if it's loving, it must speak truth to you. And in fact, if you are on mission to do ministry God's way in love, you will receive the truth of God. Rightly filtered through his word, Steve's opinion throughout the window. Word sticks, right? And so that's the way it should work. And so he's telling the Corinthians all these things. And so the context then is right ministry to some very difficult people. These people are not receptive to this. The Corinthians are making lots of accusations. They're lying about Paul. They're resisting Paul. Paul had founded the church, spent 18 months with the church, loved them, had given lots to them, and they're now rejecting him. So these are very difficult people that Paul is speaking truth to. Long time ago, uh, someone had asked me, would you ever want to teach? And I started thinking through, and I love teaching. I love preaching. I love teaching. And, and like, I, would, I would never want to teach a subject to people that aren't excited about it. It's like the worst kind of teaching, right? Now, some people love that because they get all creative. Let me, I want to make you love history. Like, like you want to kill Steve? Make me teach seventh grade history. Like, because like they don't even get how amazing this is. Now, if I was going to teach history, I'd want to teach like graduate level. People are given their lives to be history teachers. So we all love the same thing. It is astoundingly difficult to teach people who are resistant. And every homeschool mom in the church said amen, right? Because it's just hard. We got teachers in our church. They know what it's like to have a student that done what I don't, this is my least favorite subject. You ask a kid, what's your favorite subject? What do they all say? Gym or recess? And then every once in a while you get one say lunch. They don't want it. Well, Paul's trying to speak what ministry is like to people that don't want to hear it. That's a tough thing. That's why these verses are arriving. That's another context. But then thirdly, there are some other boundaries here. Because I... If I can put it this way, I'm, a, I'm like, I'm going to throw some bombs this morning about how we should do ministry and discipleship. And, there's, and, I, and I'm loath to give caveats to things when we apply them, but there's, there are applicational boundaries here. There's contextual boundaries that, that 
that we need to understand here. And so I have to give those to you this morning. First of all, I'm only talking this morning about believer to believer. I am not talking about evangelism here this morning. That's not what the text is addressing. That's not what I'm addressing. Um, when Paul or when the Bible tells us to go and give the gospel to people, we should and we need to give the gospel freely and lovingly and persistently, persistently now. Um, you know, how many of us got saved the first time we heard the gospel? Uh, I know in my own life it had to be hundreds of times, particularly growing up in a church context. Uh, and so, but there comes a point when Jesus says, you know, if there's a level of resistance, knock the dirt off your sandals and go your way. Don't cast your pearls before swine. There comes a point, even in evangelistic efforts, where there would be a freedom to walk away. But here, Paul's talking about believer to believer. Secondarily, there is an authority component here. Paul is dealing with the church, and he is the apostle. And so he's going to say things like, I speak very boldly to you. Now, I do believe that we can apply that bold speech certainly to peer-to-peer communication because of texts like Hebrews 3, uh, chapter 12, exhort one another daily. Literally, it means to admonish one another daily lest you be convinced of your sinfulness, and that's peer-to-peer. Or Ephesians 4, speaking the truth and love to one another. That should be bold speech. Uh, That's peer-to-peer. But there is a different dynamic if you're under authority trying to speak spiritual truth to someone in authority over you. doesn't mean they don't need to hear it. doesn't mean they don't need to receive it. But we think of things like Paul telling Timothy, entreat older men like you would your father. That's still speaking truth, but it's in a pleading way for them to do what's right. And so there is some boundaries here that I'm not going to have time to unpack how this might shift a little bit for us. Instead of me trying to unpack that and taking time, I'd rather go right after what this one says. And then thirdly, There is a presence here of relational connection. While they are resistant to Paul, uh, they are still willing for him to come, and they're still willing for Paul to write letters, and they're still willing for some kind of relational connection. Most of these people, frankly, had come to salvation as a result of the ministry of Christ through Paul to them. There's a longevity here, and there's a relational intimacy and connection. Now, God can do a myriad of of things in in a relationship relationship to remove that a person can pass away guess what your discipleship's done they could move away physically but they can also move away relationally they can no longer be in your relational orbit for a variety of reasons positive or negative doesn't really matter to the point this morning but this passage this text this persistent patient positive discipleship it is boundaried by these things And so if you were thinking about applying it, I would encourage you this morning to think of applying it maybe in a few particular contexts to family members. Those are people God gives you lifelong relationship with. Uh, You could think of it as people in your own local church. Those are people that God has called you and frankly you've covenanted before God with to be on mission for their spiritual growth and them on mission for your spiritual growth. You could certainly think of it in a parenting context in a child context, in a sibling context. So think of it as relational intimacy, believer to believer, where you're speaking the truth to them. Now this is hard because it's discipleship in a, in a context that's, that's fraught with a lot of conflict. Now, I don't know if you've spent a lot of time uh, speaking spiritual truth in a conflict setting. 
I've had a few of those occasions in my life. I remember one time doing street preaching in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was trying to proclaim the gospel in uh, mid-20s, grad school, and this drunk guy starts like this open-air debate with me. I'm so glad nobody had cell phones back then. I guarantee it on YouTube somewhere. And I'm like, his speech is slurred and he's yelling, he's antagonistic, he's mad. I preached at a homeless shelter in Baltimore one time, had a similar occasion. I, I preached in a church in Madison, Wisconsin and had a lady who was, had some mental health issues start screaming at me in the middle of the sermon. I've had those, can I just tell you, all of those pale in comparison to the difficulty of sitting in the living room with someone you love deeply and desperately trying to bring spiritual truth to bear in their lives. And there's conflict and increasing tension and shutting down. It's painful. It's hard. And honestly, if you've lived as a believer for any length of time, you've been there. You've been there. And so much of church life and relational life with believers is, is positive when we think of discipleship. I love how Garrett Kell, he gave a great, I felt like, grocery summary list. He, he says, what normally marks relationships is thoughtful encouragement, Hebrews 3.13. Scriptural instruction, Romans 15.14. Hopeful songs, Ephesians 5.19. Glad thanksgiving, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Weeping together in grief, Romans 12.15. Joyful testimonies. Psalm 66, 16, generous hospitality, 1 Peter 4, 9, and welcoming fellowship, Romans 15, 7. And so this is a very particular kind of moment. It's doing discipleship with some prickly people. Uh, I love tools. Uh, some of you already know that. I love working on cars, love, love fixing things, and uh, when my dad passed away a few months ago, I got some of his tools. And one of the tools I got from my father was a torque wrench. I'd never owned a torque wrench before. The funny thing or the ironic thing is I called my dad this past fall. I was like, Dad, do you have a torque wrench? I was doing some work in my car. Uh, and for the first time, I was a little nervous because I was going to have to tighten some steel bolts into an aluminum block on this car. I was like, ah, I don't know about torquing it. My dad's like, no, I've never used one, never had one. This is my dad who at 14... Uh, my uncle had completely trashed a VW bug and he just gave it to my dad because it was totaled. And at 14, with the manual, my dad completely rebuilt and redid the VW bug. And my dad, so when my dad says, I don't need a torque wrench, I usually go with what my dad says, right? When, when we go to clean out my dad's tools, guess what he had? A torque wrench. And my brother goes, my brother who knew none of our conversations this past fall, he said, yeah, it's funny. Like, I don't know, this past fall, dad was insistent, ran out to Harbor Freight or whatever to get a torque wrench and had this and was going to give it to you and forgot it Thanksgiving. And so I had my dad's torque wrench. Now, you don't need a torque wrench a lot. I mean, my dad worked on cars for, I don't know, 60 years and never used a torque wrench. So it's a very specialized tool. You don't need a lot all the time, but when you need it, you need it. Ladies, it's like your turkey oven roasting pan. You, use that, you bust that bad boy out once a year. But you're glad you got it, and so is everyone else that one week, Thanksgiving week, right? And, and so you don't need it a lot, but when you need it, you need it. That's what these verses are. It is my prayer that you don't need them a lot. It's my prayer that overtly the discipleship you experience with one another is positive and warm and affectionate. Giving and receiving freely, without opposition. But when you need these verses, when you're dealing with a prickly, resistant person, you're going to need these verses. And so when conflict comes into that spiritual relationship, and it's hard, you're going to want to remember. So I don't know how you need to write it down. 
I don't know what mnemonic device you need to use, but you need these verses. Maybe it'll be easy because 2 Corinthians 7 is the text on what is genuine repentance and what is false repentance. And so maybe that'll click in your brain because you're dealing with a difficult person. You're calling them away from sin to truth, right? And that's what discipleship is lots of times. And they're resisting and you're thinking about, man, maybe I should take them a second. Wait a minute, 2 Corinthians 7 actually talks about discipling prickly people. It's a little prickly right now. You see, the fact of the matter is dealing with prickly people is like hugging a porcupine. How do you hug, your por- hug a porcupine? Look, you can say carefully all you want, but you ain't going to do it without getting poked. You're going to get hurt. And this is one of those that as a pastor, it's hard to say to a, to, to a flock, right? It's hard to tell people, you're going to get hurt doing discipleship at some point. I guarantee it. Now, you don't want to tell somebody that, Right? You don't, you want, you, because you don't want him to be scared away from doing it. And yet Jesus consistently just tells us the truth. And so at some point, you're going to get poked. And so the pa- question is, how do I do it then? How do I do discipleship when it hurts? What do I do when, when the peace seems to be, have been replaced with pain? How do we persist? How do I do what Paul does here where he makes other visits and he writes letters and he sends other emissaries if i was paul i'd have been like i'm done with those people you know like god snuff out the candle in corinth for all he wants how do we do it well it's really going to be all about love shockingly enough it's going to have to do with loving god and loving others let's first talk about letting the love of god drive the relationship because love's hope is what's going to fuel this persistent positive discipleship you want to love god and love them verse two He says, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. One of the things that was most stunning to us as we were studying through uh, this whole section from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 6, this closing lengthy defense of Paul, is that when he gets around to uh, less showing them what ministry is like and starting to kind of call them into response when we got into chapter 6, is that he pleads for the Corinthians to love him. Now, now, to be very clear, he is not actually asking for this. He's commanding it. He begins to tell them, make room in your hearts for us. Love us. Uh, you can see it in verse, chapter 6, verse 11, down through verse 13. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. In other words, your failure to love me, Paul, to receive truth from God through me, is not a me problem. It's a you problem. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. You have a narrow, shrinking heart. You're like, uh, remember, the, remember the Grinch, right? Had a heart, what was it like, uh, was it three sizes too small or two sizes too small, whatever, and it grows, expands out. That's, that's kind of the language. Your heart is shrunk, shriveled up. You're like a prune. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, so this kind of filial love, this parenting kind of love, widen your hearts also. Love me. And we spend a lot of time wanting to unpack and understand that because, frankly, lots of authorities could use that in an abusive way right? Commanding you love them. Jesus says, love him. And matter of fact, Jesus says, if you're my friend, you'll do whatever I tell you to do. Normally, we don't think of that as a qualification of friendship. 
right? Like if your little boy or little girl came home and they, and they said, I made a great new friend on the block. Yeah, who is it? Oh, it's Susie. Yeah, she said, I can be her friend as long as I do whatever she says. Like Susie's no friend for you. But Jesus says, you're my friends, as long as you do whatever I tell you to do, because Jesus is always on mission for his own glory and what's best for us. And we, guess what, in our flesh are always on mission. We think it's for our best, but we always go on making wrong turns. And so Paul, though, says, love me. And so why does Paul do that? Well, you know, and I can't re-preach the sermon, but in chapter 6, he demonstrated it wasn't for him. You see, an abusive authority is going to demand love from you because it makes them feel better about them. But neither God, God doesn't need our love, and Paul didn't need their love. And so to prove that, Paul goes through this grocery list of all the ways he sacrificed for them, all the ways he's loved them. Paul is saying time after time after time, look, I'm not in this for what it gets me. That was the accusation they were making about him. Have you ever tried to disciple a prickly person and they say you're just in this for you? You just want me to do that so that you feel better. You're trying to bring the truth of God to bear on them, and you're like, I really am not on mission for me. Like, this is not a happy, joy moment for me. I didn't wake up this morning and say, yay, let me make so-and-so mad at me by speaking spiritual truth to them. And Paul understands this reality, this affectionate relationship with, we have with God. When we love God, we obey God. When we love God, we receive truth from God. And here's where it gets tough. One of the means that God uses to speak truth into my life and into your life is to, through very broken instruments, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And you and I, when we're being prickly, because guess what? If you've been around long enough, you've discipled prickly people, and you've been around long enough, you've been a prickly person. Matter of fact, some of you right now are sitting in the same row with prickly people. You can tell because you were them. That was the moment you thought you could get to elbow somebody, didn't you? No. When we're prickly, this is what we want to say. I'll listen to God, and I'll listen to his word, but I'm not listening to you. And the problem you're going to have with that is God has said, there are many times I'm going to work through broken people to bring truth into your life. You and I don't get to say, I'm going to love Jesus, but not you. You don't have that option. And Paul understands the reality that as long as they are resistant in their affections toward him as he's speaking truth to them, they will be resistant in their affections toward God and they're resistant to the truth of God himself. Paul's not saying open wide your hearts because Paul needs them to love him. Paul is saying open wide your hearts because it was the key to their own growth. And so to prove it even further, Paul says he has wronged no one, corrupted no one, uh, taken advantage of no one. And there's the three key things, and they really are setting the stage for when the shots he's going to take at the false teachers in a few chapters. Now, the wronged someone simply means, I haven't, like, I haven't sinned against you. Look, Paul's not saying I'm perfect, but Paul is saying, I haven't done what you're accusing me of. I have not sinned against you in this way. So that is not a barrier to you need to love me and listen to the truth of God here. But he goes on from that. He says, we haven't corrupted anyone. Uh, literally, to corrupt someone would mean to teach them falsely for your own benefit, which is exactly what the false teachers were doing. They said things that appealed to the Corinthians because it made them look good. And to take advantage, it, it, there's debate, but most consistently, linguistically, that would mean to stake, take money from somebody. I haven't been in this for the dime. 
They all say Paul's in it for the dime, even though Paul won't take money from them, which is ironic. And the false teachers wanted a lot of money from them. And so what's, what's fascinating here is the Corinthians gave their affections to people that sinned against them, people that took advantage of them, people that were corrupting them, but they wouldn't give their affections to the one speaking truth to them. Isn't that amazing? Why would we do that? Because these guys say what we want to hear, and this guy tells us what we don't like. This one screams out, blind spot. This one screams out, you're not the problem, they are. This one says, God will chasten and discipline his children. This one says, God will never do that. He's so loving, he would never bring consequences for sin. This one says your spiritual gifts are to love and serve others. This one says your spiritual gifts are so that you look good and powerful. And they're like, oh, let me give my affections to these guys. It's almost like better the devil you know. Like we see all their wickedness and all their corruption. And Paul didn't sin against us, but I don't like what he says anyhow, so better not the devil I don't know. And so Paul is pointing out to these people, he has loved God. Paul has sought to do ministry righteously. Can I just tell you this? As you do discipleship, whether it's to prickly people or not, let your love of God drive what you're doing. In other words, don't disciple people for how it makes you look, how it makes you feel, or whether or not they respond well to you. Now that's convicting to me. I'll tell you why. Because it is frustrating beyond belief to speak truth to someone, have them nod their head, and go away unchanged. I know that because I saw my parents do that with me for a long time. It is annoying to continue to tell somebody something and then reject it. And at some point, guess what? What prickly people do is they blame you. I'm not going to change it because it's your fault. I'm not doing this because you didn't say it the right way. You didn't say it the right time. You didn't bring the right truth to prayer. You didn't give me enough examples. That's why I'm not growing and changing. We all know how to blame shift for our sinfulness. And when you're trying to disciple someone and that's how they're responding, suddenly it's revealed, are you in this for you? Or are you in this for God? And when you're in it for you, some telltale signs would be you will walk away from it. You will get irritable and angry, sinfully so. You will get emotionally manipulative and controlling. You will start to use tactics and ploys intended to control the other person. But Paul does none of that. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. We've wronged no one. Paul didn't do ministry in a way designed to control and manipulate the Corinthians for how it would make him feel and look. Do you disciple for how it makes you feel or do you disciple out of a love for God? Prickly people will reveal it. What's your track record with prickly people? Selfishness will mark your spiritual investment. You'll invest when it's convenient, but not when it's inconvenient. Harshness, manipulation, sinful anger, shallowness in relational connection, withdrawal from others, isolation from other people, and throwing in the towel. All of those will be markers if you are in it for you. 
loving God and others makes the spiritual growth about the glory of God and their good and not about your emotions or reputation. And so first of all, if you're going to have love that persists in a positive way, you're going to have to do discipleship out of a love for God. You know, trials have a way of revealing, and prickly people have a way of revealing what really drives your discipleship. And so then how do we let the love of others define the relationship? We want to let the love of God drive the relationship, but how do we let the love of others define the relationship? And Paul really just opens his own heart here and gives us a couple of, I think, great practical takeaways. First of all, commit relationally to this, to this moment. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you. You see, Paul understood when he was just grocery listing these problems that there, he's speaking to a whole church. So you've got a mixed bag in the church. In Corinth, you've got some people that are still accusing Paul. You've got the false teachers. You've got other people aligned with the false teachers. But then you've got a majority, apparently, that feel pretty convicted about the way they've treated Paul. And so Paul knows when he lays out, I didn't wrong you, I didn't corrupt you, I didn't take advantage of you, that there's a whole majority of the church that's sitting there like sinking lower in their seats. they got some tender consciences, and they're like, yeah, I know I said he did, but he really didn't. Oh, and it hurts, it stings them a little bit here in this moment. But Paul doesn't want them to feel condemned. He didn't bring this up to make them sink lower in their seats. He wasn't saying this to make them feel bad. He says, I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Oh, we just lost our Prezi. Great. Here we go. Um, and so what does that mean? Well, it, it means a couple things. First of all, it means I'm going to do all of life with you because Jesus saved you and he saved me. I am not envisioning a day when you are no longer in my life. I'm committed to this. I'm not walking away from this. You can't do discipleship with prickly people if you're constantly thinking, now is this the time when I need to cut this off? Well, this will be the last time I say this. You will be incapable of doing it in love. If you're always looking for the way out, you'll never stay in. And we understand that about any relationship, don't we? All the time. In discipleship, as you are investing in these people spiritually, Paul's saying, I didn't list this. I don't want you to slink lower. I wasn't trying to give you a guilt complex. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I, as much as lies within me, I'm committed to this mess. Because it's a mess, but I'm committed to it. There are times in discipleship, just to be, honest, to be very clear, it's never top-down. Discipleship is always the 360, right? You, you may be trying to help someone take the next spiritual step, but I guarantee you, as you walk in humility and in the Spirit, they are helping you to grow and change also. And your commitment to this must be a defining attribute of loving discipleship. I'm not giving up on you. Uh, if we think about it with dealing with a child. You might have said these words to a child. There is nothing you can do that will ever make me love you more or make me love you less. If you haven't said that to your kids, you need to. You need to say it a lot. You say it all the time, and it needs to be the truth. That same kind of disposition and, and attitude must be prevalent in your spiritual discipleship with one another. 
Believer to believer, I'm committed to this. It's never going to get so messy that I'm just going to walk away. And Paul extends it, and he gives us the reason. He says in life or in death, Paul's committed to it because he knows, guess what? We're all going to be standing before the throne one day anyway. If I'm going to spend eternity with you, when did eternity begin? Well, by definition, eternity has no beginning, has no end, but you and I both understand our eternal life begins at salvation. I'm going to spend eternity with these people. Don't you find it ironic that there are folks that they start doing relationship, friendship, spiritual walk with one another, and then they're like, yeah, I'll do heaven with you, but I don't ever want to do here with you. That's not Christ-like, folks. You're going to love other people in difficult discipleship context. You need to commit. You need to be all in. All in. How do you know when someone's all in? How do you know? Ah, when things get tough and they don't walk away. That's how you know. You know, isn't it funny? We hate trials. But trials do such a good work of revealing our hearts and our faith and strengthening us and purifying us. They really do. I'm all in. And so we need to commit relationally. Now, we just have to be reminded we can't control others. And that doesn't mean other people may not walk away from us. They might. That was one of those contextual boundaries, the relational intimacy. You can't control that. You can't control God doing it, taking them out of this world, taking them from your your physical uh, presence, taking them out of relational context. They sit down relationally. They're not willing to, to have any kind of real communication with you. They're not willing to talk about it. They're not willing to work through it. As much as lies within you, you need to commit relationally, but you need to understand you can't control them relationally. Do you walk with this kind of commitment to the people that hurt you? Man, this is tough because, like, if somebody, if I was, if I was back in Wisconsin and you, they'd have porcupines, you see porcupines that always hit southern. If, if I saw somebody about to pick up a porcupine, I'd be like, don't. Pick up the porcupine. My family and I, we, we, we try to find sometimes TV shows we all enjoy as a family. I don't know if you've seen it. Dr. Pole, a veterinarian dude. This is so funny. Our family has like all of one pet. It's a fish, right? There's some people in this church like have full-on farms going on, right? They love some animals. We love animals through the screen. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what we like to do. We're all fascinated by this. And then he had these dogs show up and they had gotten into a porcupine. I mean, it just was so pitiful and sad and dr pole's like yeah you know they anesthetize the dog and he's yanking these quills out you can hear him hitting the pan pa-ting, pa-ting, pa-ting. and he's like talking he's like you know some dogs are smart they hit that porcupine and they run the other way these dogs are not your smart ones they kept going after it if you saw that right wouldn't you want to look at somebody and say look you got poked once hello hello mcfly go away right this is so tough because this is exactly what i'm about to tell you hang on you know buckle up pull up your britches you done got poked in discipleship, get ready, you're going to get poked again. And you're going to keep on getting poked. Because life is messy and so are relationships. And we don't have the luxury of walking away from them, commit relationally to them. They walk away, they go away, that's them. You can't control them, that's okay. But as much as lies within you, commit relationally. Secondarily, speak boldly. We're only going to go through half of chapter of verse 4 because the other half is for next week about how we respond and work through this. Verse 4, I am acting with great boldness toward you. 
This isn't the first time Paul's told the Corinthians that he's been so bold with them. He's actually used that kind of language a couple different times, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And it basically means I speak very frankly. I don't beat around the bush. Here it is. I'm going to lay it down for you. I speak very boldly with you. But this is where the pain has entered. This is where the problem arises. It's when Paul speaks boldly to them, they get mad. You can see that back. You might remember chapter 6, verse 11. We have spoken freely to you. Same kind of language. We've spoken boldly to you, plainly to you. I put it down to you. I have gave you the 411. Whatever kind of lingo you want to use, I speak straight. And what was the response? Your heart is restricted not by him, but by them. You want to make somebody mad in your relationship, say something they don't want to hear. As long as you preach to the choir, you get lots of amens. You start messing with people's life, that's when they're going to get ticked off. You want to get poked, you grab that porcupine. You're working spiritually with someone. You're wanting to help them take the next spiritual step to grow in their walk with Jesus. And you see this blind spot in their life. You see this error in their life. And so you work through Galatians 6, right? Uh, You go to them in humility. You consider Matthew, um, where you're, you're yanking the beam out of your own face, the log out of your own eye, before you want to take the speck out of their eye. But nonetheless, God has called you in this relationship. You see this sin pattern. You see the struggle. So you pray. You bathe it in prayer, man. You bathe You marinate that thing in prayer. You take some time on it, right? You make sure that you're going to speak it in due season because words spoken in right season are like apples of gold and settings of silver. Not every time is the right time for this kind of confrontational, a difficult, prickly discipleship conversation. You set the time. You devote to it. You don't waylay them. You don't ambush them. You say, I want to talk to you, friend. We've been working through this book together. We've been studying the Bible together. And I see this coming out of you, and I'm a little concerned about it. Can we talk about it? And you start to share it with them, and all, you just watch them. The walls go up. And they just start sitting back. All the physical posture changes. Eyebrows. Hmm. There's another one. Hmm. Mm. Oh, ah. Mm. I'm just giving away all my cues for what goes on in, at five tip top, right? And every time, it seemed like you got together every two weeks. And the next two weeks, like the day before, all of a sudden they text you, hey, I'm not going to be able to make it today. And you have fear of man and you're insecure. And so you're scared, it's because you said this hard thing to them. But you don't know, so you want to commit relationship, relationally, you want to walk positively, and then they cancel the next one. And then you meet three times later, and it, like, it doesn't come up at all. And suddenly you just watch the relationship start to drift. And you don't know what to do about it, because it's really hard. Now, I guarantee you, if I ask you to raise your hands, if you've been through that, almost every hand, I've got, I got to believe almost every hand will go up. Let's just do it. How many of you experienced that kind of painful thing in spiritual? Look around. Look around. Now, why do I have you do that? Because you are not alone. Now, if you're like Steve, next time that happens, what do you think? Well, King Jesus, you're going to have to send somebody else on that mission. I've been there. I've done it. Not going back. I got the T-shirt and the whole nine yards. I still got the scar from the prickly porcupine you called me to love. Done. You know, some people do that in their parenting. Some people do that in their marriages. Definitely we're tempted to do it in our friendships, our relationships, coworkers. We say, I can't go back. Speaking the truth 
boldly is what really puts the relationship at, work, at risk. Now, I found this fascinating because I, there's a passage in Galatians where Paul runs into something very similar with that church. Galatians 4, I'm going to turn your Bibles there, Galatians 4, 12 through 16. And I just want you to know you're in good company. You saw the hands raised, right? You're in really good company because you're with Paul. Because it's not just here with the Corinthians, but the Galatians. Galatians 4, verse 12, he says, Brothers, and listen to the language, the affection. Brothers, brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. What was the bodily ailment? This is where we guessed that it might be his eyes. You'll see this in a moment. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God. The word there means messenger of God. Has Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. And so we think what's going on is Paul uh, either had some kind of eye condition, eye ailment, persistent problem. And so trying to have a guy preach to you that's borderline blind, they didn't have large print version. Like somebody else was probably having to read or write it out or Paul's having to go back and try to remember what he said and it's difficult, but they're enduring because they're enjoying the blessing of the ministry of Jesus through him. And they're like, man, I don't care if, if Paul's blind as a bat. Like God's speaking to me through this guy and I'm, just, I'm, I'm praising God for it. If I could give up my eyes for him to use, I'd do it. I love this guy so much. That's an amazing, affectionate relationship because they're appreciating the broken vessel, but ultimately they're appreciating the treasure inside the broken vessel. And they're blessed by it, and they realize that God is doing this in Paul's life to humble Paul, to work through Paul, to love them. Then verse 16. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Wow! What a far cry from patiently enduring Paul's trial. What a far cry from lovingly submitting to truth. What a far cry from saying, I'd gouge up my eyes, because he spoke a truth they didn't want to hear. Now he's their enemy. They're no longer thankful for his presence. They just want him to get out of their midst. Watch out now. Discipleship relationships are dangerous ground, and they're ripe for making enemies out of friends when hard truth comes into the picture. Love others enough to speak truth. Speak it timely. Speak it graciously. Speak it slowly. Speak it tenderly. Speak it humbly. Speak it lovingly, but speak boldly that others might grow. Last one for this morning. Rejoice in small growth. He says, verse 4 again, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. Now Paul says that, and that just absolutely flabbergasted me when I was, when I was studying this week. Excuse me? Now, what stunned me even more is what, what he says later in chapter 7. And so if you skim all the way down to verse 14, he talks about his conversation with Titus before he sent Titus with what we know is called the severe letter to them. Verse 14, whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus proved true. Basically, when Paul sent Titus to the Corinthians, he gave them this severe letter that was a strong rebuke for all their reactions to him from his visit. But he still spoke to Titus with shocking optimism about how he thought they'd respond. He's even 
said he's proud of them when Titus finally comes back and tells them of their response. This is the same crew that's still following some false teachers. This is the same church that has yet to fulfill their promise. They said, we'll take up a big offering for the persecuted Jews, and then they quit taking up the offering. He's going to have to confront them about that in a few chapters. He's still proud of them. This is the same crew that's still lying about him, still believing false reports about him. This is the same crew that just so recently has been defying his ministry and saying that his ministry is warped and messed up. This is the same crew, and there's few things more painful than this. Paul is suffering, and they say, well, you know what? That is your fault. You made your bed, you got to lie in it. The same crew that said that, and he says he boasted about them. All they did, they've done one thing, one thing. He told them all this truth. They've done one thing right, one thing. They disciplined the dude out of their church. That's the one thing they did. That's what he's going to unpack through the rest of chapter 7 when he deals with godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. They've done one thing. They repented of their failure to discipline this guy, and Paul focuses on that. And he says he's proud of them. Paul was confident that they'd respond rightly. How? <laughs> they have not no real track record here. Why? What are you thinking, Paul? Loving discipleship of others rejoices at the work of God in someone's life, no matter how small it may seem. Let me put it this way. Uh, a few weeks ago, we got to stop by Greenville on the way up. I have a new niece, Mackenzie. She's adorable. Uh, a little red hair, tiny, happy baby. One of those babies makes you feel like you're like the world's best parent because they're smiley all the time. And Bethany hadn't got to see her, so Bethany's there with her. And Mackenzie's right at that, you know, rollover kind of stage. And, you know, baby rolls over, everybody gets excited. Four months, supposed to roll over. I remember that because Ian, our oldest, didn't roll over to like four, four months and three days, and I was already Googling, afraid there was something wrong with my kid, right? So they roll over, and you're like, yay, they roll over, oh, this is amazing, right? Baby takes its first step. Everybody's cheering. My, my nephew Maverick back Thanksgiving, it was a, yeah, it was a glorious one. It was actually this past spring, right? It was his first, right at his first birthday party. His parents have been trying to get him to walk. He's not walking, right? Uncle Steve rolls into town. I like to take credit for this. It's probably not mine, but I'll take it anyway. And you will support me, right? Um, and he took a couple steps towards me. And I'm just watching my brother and my sister-in-law's face. And I'm like, really? This is happening right now? He won't walk to mom and dad. He'll walk to Uncle Steve. I'm amazing, right? And everybody's cheering, right? Baby, oh, he took a step. Oh, I mean, he ain't like he walked to the mailbox yet, folks. I mean, he's still pooping his diaper, waking up at night. Can't feed himself. Like, if he's thirsty, if he's thirsty, he ain't taking a hike to the fridge to get a beverage. Everybody excited about one step. Can you imagine being the person in the room that would be that way? What's everybody excited about? He took one step back to the football game. Woo! Genius baby rolled over. Ah, they all do it. You're like, what is the matter with you? Why can you not rejoice in the, the miracle of his central nervous system and the way God made him? And one step I know is going to lead to what? More steps. And, and, and if you talk to a parent, man, my kid might be the Olympic 
marathon winner or, or, or they're going to give a great speech one day or they're going to be an academic or, or, or they're going to have uh, a beautiful impact on the world or they're going to be a loving friend or a wonderful mommy. They, they're, gonna be, they're, they're imagining and envisioning all these kinds of things as they see growth happen and even the smallest of steps they rejoice in. And Paul, in a very prickly relationship, is thrilled at the smallest of steps of progress in sanctification. When we are called to see the love of God, we question His love. Bad things happen. Difficult things happen. We wonder, how can, does God really love me? Will He take care of me? It's interesting because Jesus points us to the very tiny things. He says, you question God's love, He sees when a sparrow falls to the ground. You question God's love, he clothes the flowers of the field. He points us to tiny works of God that are yet miraculous. And he's saying, if I can take care of the little tiny thing, don't you think I can handle the big thing? And so we begin to see this dominant theme explode out of the Bible that Jesus, when he is looking at Peter, still stinking like the Sea of Galilee where he took his eyes off Jesus and he says, on this rock I'll build my church, yet knowing that this man will argue with him about the cross, yet knowing that this man will fall asleep when he's in the garden praying, yet knowing that this man will use profanity to deny even knowing him, he says he sees what he will make him to be, not what he currently is, and he knows that there will be small steps little things that he will do and he will receive glory from it. And so Paul rejoices. And Paul knows that they are saved. He knows that the Spirit is at work in them. And he knows that God said, he which has begun a good work in you will keep doing that work until you die, he'll perfect it. Paul's hope is not in the Corinthians. The focus of our hope is always Christ. His work, in, his work in others. His zeal for His glory saves the lost. His sacrifice secures our salvation. His passion for His people sanctifies them. His perfect life ensures His fulfilled promises, including that He who started that work will complete that work. How does God, growth happen? How do these prickly people even grow? How do you and I grow when we are the prickly porcupine. Isn't it by the amazing power of the Spirit? Isn't that how growth happens? How often in my own heart has it been marked by discouragement because I've dismissed the tiny miracles of small steps of growth? I was convicted because I have to admit that the opposite of patient optimism that Paul puts on display here in discipleship the opposite, which my heart and its flesh is naturally bent toward, is a heart that looks at Jesus and when small things happen, says this. I mean, cool and all, Jesus, but don't you have something bigger? I mean, what is my problem? It's a lack of love for God and a lack of love for others. Would I ever dare look at Jesus and say that? When was the last time you spoke hope 
into a relationship by marking out growth that you have seen. Well, I don't want to do that because that might fill them with pride. And, you know, pride comes before a fall and hogs before destruction. And um, God says you have to humble yourself to get grace. And so, no. Paul is telling this church, I'm proud of you. If Jesus, and maybe, maybe we don't do it because we don't understand how God looks at us. God is not frustrated with you. He's growing and changing you, friend. When was the last time you spoke hope into a relationship by marking out growth that you've seen? When was the last time you persisted with the prickly person because God put them in your relational orbit? When was the last time you pursued someone for the sake of the glory of God and your growth and theirs? When was the last time you praised God for the miracle of sanctification in someone you struggle with? Love's hope fuels persistent positive discipleship. 21-year Marine Corps veteran Kenny Sargent was in Afghanistan. A sniper fired a round at his team, ricocheted off a tank, entered in through under his left eyeball, exited o- over his right ear. Terrible traumatic brain injury. His wife couldn't see him for over five days. Finally met up with him in a Navy hospital. Kenny Sargent as one back from the dead. And his wife walked by his side as she rejoiced every moment of him learning to take steps again. Of him learning to eat again. Of him learning to speak again. And we rejoice in her faithful, persistent, optimistic, patient love as she watched her husband as one from the dead come back to life. Can we not do the same as we disciple people who spiritually were dead and are now made alive? And God is teaching them to see and to speak and to walk like him. Love's hope fuels persistent, positive discipleship.